Well, hello and welcome to uh, one more episode of Sail Faster, which is the podcast for those who obsess about sailing their boat faster than anyone else. Uh, today, actually, we are very privileged to be in a sail loft in Annapolis with our distinguished guest, Scott Steele, who is a professional sailor, coach and sail consultant for uh, a whole range of brands, international, national and local sail brands. So, Scott, hello. Glad you could join us. Well, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Great to have you. Um, for those that don't know Scott, which is probably quite a small list, uh, Scott's a very accomplished competitive sailor with an incredibly long list of accolades that go back to his windsurfing days and before. So, Scott, why don't you uh, give us a quick uh, quick bio? Okay. Well, uh, chronologically, I'm going to uh, go back to my youth, and um, I was quite uh, Privileged and lucky to have two brothers that were older than me that were quite good sailors. And by the time I was 10 years old, uh, I was um, racing my own boat. And um, over the years, uh, I also was able to take the helm of our uh, our family boat and raced in uh, Morsi. Um, and then they came out with the um, the Ton Cup racing, and I got involved in uh, in a program at, when I was age 16 with the, the three-quarter ton cup worlds, that what happened to be here in Annapolis. So I got brought onto a boat. The owner uh, was skippering and didn't do well first few races, and he turned the helm over to me. So I felt pretty lucky to be able to sail against uh, some unbelievable sailors and be on the helm of this brand-new custom three-quarter tonner and, uh, and did pretty well. It was a great experience for me and uh, kind of, you know, boosted me in a lot of different ways. So, uh, that went, uh, that went well. I was, but I was at that point, I had also owned a laser. I was all of 125 pounds racing a full rig <laughs> laser. So, um, and I've, I've always told people that really that's when I became a, a good boat handler, you know, um, because when you're that light and you're sailing a boat, that's that powerful when it's windy, you better be good or else you're swimming. <laughs> the wind was under 10. I was golden. And our fleets back then were 75 boats. So I could uh, do be in the top five in these regattas um, quite often when the wind stayed light. But what I realized over over time was I had to get better in what I wasn't good at. And that worked well for me down the road. Um, and later in my life, uh, working on my deficiencies. So that is uh, is something I've I've always told people, and I've, when I coach people that sailing dinghies and you know and, and windsurfing and all of that, find out what you're weak at and work on those, because what's the point of working on something you're already confident and you're already doing well with? So um, that makes sense. Yeah, totally. It just, it just makes me think how many weaknesses I have when it comes to sailing. So, <laughs> right, right. So much to so much to work on. But you, you um, after that, you um, you're very well known for windsurfing, weren't you? Uh, one of the top windsurfers in right. the US, if not the world. Right. So I I, I got into windsurfing. Now I, I go back to how I ended up on a windsurfer. I went to St. Mary's College, and uh, joined the sailing team there, and I helped build their team. At the time, uh, as a freshman and a sophomore, I um, we had a small team, but we were doing better. Finally, got uh, a friend of mine to transfer from the University of Maryland. His name is Monty Spindler, and he was quite a good laser sailor. Uh, he came in, and we were able to put St. Mary's, little St. Mary's, on the map against uh, some 
schools that had been, you know, powerhouses in uh, college sailing in the U.S. Monty and I went surfed a lot together, but um, Jeff Kennedy came along uh, and he sailed my other division. I, I still sail with him to this day on his um, Italia 1498. Uh, what Jeff and I did a lot of was uh, we did a lot of windsurfing at the school. And when they named this the sport, an Olympic sport, I had just graduated from St. Mary's College. So it all worked out to go into that. So U.S. Sailing put together a regatta that was going to be a qualifier. It happened to be here in Annapolis. Uh, I think we had 75 competitors show up and we sailed on the windsurfer. There was not enough wing glider. And um, everybody came from all over the country um, to try to qualify for the U.S. Um, I didn't win that event, but I got second place and qualified for the U.S. team. But I had taken this job with Mark Lindsay and ML Imports. So I had to pass on being part of the team when they went to the European Championships in Lake Garda. But the good thing there was (laughs) that my brother, who had just missed a by one on the to make the team now could be on the team so you pipped your brother for the team and then because you dropped out he got on he got on exactly yeah 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 so that that was good it was a little payback to him because he's the one who got me into the sport in the first place (laughs) after that uh the u.s sailing said they would save some money for me to go to the worlds which uh, later that summer uh actually i think it was in the fall of uh of 1981 that I went to Palamos, Spain, um, raced in the world championships. The Wingle, this is Winglider World Championships. Yeah. The uh, summer we trained a little bit and I got ready to go to Europe and uh, went over there, raced in Palamos, uh, about 120 boards on the starting line. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I got four. I was fairly new to the board, never really raced in any, any big events. At that point, I think we'd only sailed in you know, trained together in about eight boards in the wing glider. So I didn't know what to expect. Wow. I didn't know if it was going to be, you know, the hundredth, fortieth, or, or in but this case, I was fourth. But presumably your sailor, I mean, wind service is different, obviously, than from a dinghy or certainly a three-quarter tonner. Right. But presumably what you, your experience in, I would say real sailing, but it was real sailing, must have helped with. Oh, absolutely. If not so, handling, certainly tactics and. Right. So wind the, shifts and it, it, it brings back a memory that um, the, the head of U.S. sailing and uh, of the Olympic sailing group, Sam Merrick, he's always said, he said, you know, it's so great to have you as the sailor sailing in our, you know, competing for our winds, windsurfers, you know, but then there was a, there was a little group of us that came out of sailing yeah, and yeah. we were tactical sailors. So when I got over to a big event, like in Europe, I, I wasn't intimidated you know, I mean, I, I was worried because I didn't know how I was going to do. Um, didn't know if I was a good enough board handler. I knew I could sail well, uh, but could I put myself in a position to be able to? Um, so I, um, you know, I got a good start, sailed the course and played, you know, attention to the shifts. And uh, and that's what works for me. Fundamental. Because yeah. some of the other guys that were, I was sailing against, even though they were amazing windsurfers. And on the wing glider, they were incredible. But they would uh, not always be on the lifted tech. Yeah. So yeah. that's that's why I did as well as I did. You know, I still had a lot of work to do on the wing glider. They had been sailing them for a while, and uh, but to finish fourth was it was quite an accomplishment. Yeah. Uh, that was probably yeah. one of my best regattas. You know, looking back, early on um, in my 
you know, windsurfing career. So after returning from the uh, world championships in 1981, uh, just trained some in Florida with the U.S. team. And uh, the next uh, year, 82, I uh, did various events. Uh, I did quite well in some events. I won the American championships in the windsurfer and um, started getting more time on the wing glider. So I was doing, still doing a little bit of both. I actually won the 1983 windsurfer. Um, as, as we got into 1984, um, I continued to you know train hard in Florida and uh, whenever I could go to major events. Uh, we had the U.S. trials in June of 1984. I, um, I won the trials and only one per country goes. So that was up oh, to that point yeah. was probably the hardest event for me because second place was no good. But I did get my uh, choice of tuning partners after that and put together a tuning campaign with uh, Bruce Kendall, who is from New Zealand. And we trained in Corpus Christi, Texas. I had talked about working on your weaknesses. Yeah. Corpus Christi, Texas in May uh, in June of, um, of 1984 were, um, were quite, uh, it was quite windy. So we were both a little smaller. We had to train in that. All the other competitors uh, from Europe and so forth were all over in Long Beach, California, training every day. And while we were in Corpus Christi, we worked hard um, for uh, about two weeks uh, with our training partners and um we got significantly better in big breeze. Mm. Um, so to this day, I've always, always coached. The first thing I find out from someone I get on the boat with is, what do you think your weaknesses are? So then we got to work on those because if you get those, then you can work on the rest yeah. of it. Um, as we build up to the Olympics, um, I, um, I read an interesting article in Sports Illustrated that said that, uh, that it was going to be dominated by the Europeans and yeah, it was it was quite interesting because I'd done um, three world championships and I finished fourth, eighth, and ninth in the world championships in the wing glider. Um, and there was 120 competitors, and now we boil it down to 40s. But they didn't give me it. It was a little fuel for fire. Oh, they, and they, they wrote they, your chances off before you even started the yeah, first yeah, race. Yeah, the expert <laughs> wrote, wrote this big article, and uh, and I had kept it in my bag or on my wall. So it reminded me I had to show whoever wrote this article. <laughs> that was not going to be the outcome. So what happened was we started off, I started off uh, quite well and the wind was a little on the lighter side. So I had um, actually won two of the first four races. Oh, wow. And yeah. I, it was winning the regatta yeah. over yeah. a five-time world champion in wing gliders. That was uh, Stefan Vandenberg uh, from Holland. Oh yeah. So, yeah, yeah, he's he's he was definitely a legend, and he he was the one to beat. And there was no Sports Illustrated said I wasn't going to beat him. I said, yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> but um, but I gave him a run, and uh, so races five, six, and seven, it got uh, a, a windier, and um, I was down a little bit. I think I finished off the regatta with a seven nine and a fourteen, mm. but I had already had a nice a nice padding um, for the earlier races, and uh, I was able to manage uh, to hang on to second. Wow. Obviously, Stefan Vandenberg. Very impressive. Um, he yeah. went on and uh, won the gold. And the the neat part was that Bruce Kendall, my friend and training partner, he was third. Yeah. So we both yeah. won medals. We both, you know, outshined, uh, you know, what some people's expect. Yeah. 
getting back into sailing was um, was something I knew I would do eventually. I kind of wanted to, you know, run the string out of all my competitive uh, options in, in windsurfing. I, um, I did well. I did go to the Goodwill Games in 1990. So I won that trials to do that and got a silver medal. Matter of fact, from that, I also got the um, U.S. sportsmanship. They, uh, they, they picked me out because I uh, witnessed for the guy from Poland that beat me in the Goodwill Games um, uh, that he was tossed out in the last race and I would have won the regatta. And I went to the jury and the protest hearing and said, you got it wrong. He, they, he was over early but he was quite good on his board and he spun around the pin end so quick that they didn't know that he cleared himself. I was right next to him. I saw the whole, there was uh, some in the heat of the competitive moment. That was, that was a good thing to do. Right. It was the only thing to do. Cause if I had not done anything and then he ended up getting disqualified, what would that gold medal mean to me? Cause I would know. Yeah. I really didn't deserve it. There's probably a lot of people who, who would have just <laughs> accepted I'm sure it. Funny. People have told me, he's like, Oh, I don't think many people would have done what you did. I said, well, I hope they would have, but no, that's great. You know, yeah. anyway, to get back to my point of getting into sailing. So after the 92 trials, I didn't win on my, I, you know, was still, you know, did, did coach uh, some of the windsurfing up to 96. But at that point I had to um, get back into, you know, work because uh, my first uh, child was born in 1991. And yeah. I, um, so the first thing I did was I liked coaching. I went and became a college coach at Georgetown University. Yeah, yeah, and, I saw that on your in, in 1993. I did that for uh, five years, and I did a little bit. Le- I did a lot less sailing, only because I had my little kids at this point. I had a uh, first one born in 91, next one was born in 93, then I had one in 95, uh, and then I had uh, finally had my daughter in 1997, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and, I, and I had a fifth child in uh, 2003. Wow! But uh, yeah. so I have five kids. Yeah. But uh, so that that kind of took me out of uh, off the tiller for yeah. a while. But <laughs> what it did is it put me it put me in the coach boat though. After I came back from paternity leave raising children in 2010, I joined this Salem Loft and um, I started sailing sails to uh, to racers uh, to cruisers as well. But uh, it put me in a different arena, and I started uh, coaching a little bit on the side for these. Um, customers. If I could bring somebody from the back of the fleet to the middle of the fleet, it was like victory. I wasn't one of the guys that had been in this uh, keelboat coaching thing for years and years. So there was a lot of people that I learned from. Then it kind of ran into an opportunity to race some things, that, some races that I had never done before. And this is awesome. So it takes, it's very interesting for me to, to race these events because you got to be uh, navigating, um, uh, the big picture and uh, looking at the weather patterns that are going to be here tomorrow, not what's going on, you know, on the race course that, that hour. So um, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. And uh, doing Chicago Mac races was uh, also, you know, a great opportunity for me and uh, enjoyed that, Did it, you know, twice with the uh, Commodore Chicago Yacht Club, you know, so it was, uh, it was great to be asked by some people that are, you know, like, you know, they, they realized I had something to offer them and, uh, and I wasn't just a windsurfer. I was actually not so bad at sailing either. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking out of the window behind you here, but and just to remind you, we're in a working sail loft, so you can hear uh, what's a lot of cutting and drilling going on behind us. <laughs> so this past weekend, you mentioned that, I was uh, racing the uh, Melges 15 down in Jensen Beach, Florida. Uh, 
we had 95 competitors. So uh, wow. quite a competitive event. Right. And I haven't been yeah. in a fleet like that since um, well, I did the 2004 J22 Worlds. And there was 150, but they weren't all on the same on the line at the same time. So you have to go all the way back to my windsurfing days to have 90 <laughs> over 90 you know boats on the line at the same time. How do so, you do? So it was a challenge. Uh, got a little windy. I, I did I did fine, but I, I one race uh, didn't do so fine, and I I learned something from it. So I'm going to take my uh, put my coaching hat on for a minute. Yeah, and uh, and say that hey, you can still make mistakes no matter what your background is. I made a big one. I came into the windward mark, um, uh, attack under the under the starboard tack line of boats. So I, I barely snuck in there. Luckily, I didn't foul anybody, but it left me uh, low at uh, coming around the um, the top and to the offset. I was uh, I had boats above me, and, and of course we get to the offset mark and we immediately put the spinnaker up. Didn't fill immediately. The guy above me got his up a little quicker, and um, and he rolled rolled me. So well, what happened? You have a 95 boat fleet. There's a ton of boats behind him and there's a train set up. And you've stalled at this point. I have right? stalled your, and I can't head up. I have very little speed. And even though it's blowing about 15 uh, and they were all planing off at, you know, 11, 12 knots on the uh, Melges 15, I was sitting there. So the, the train went over me and over me and over me until I got you know, sort of disillusioned and figured I had to get out of there. So I jibed. The train forms a wall of spinnakers yeah, going from the offset mark down the reaching leg. So even when you yeah. jibe, there's no wind getting You're through. Still so I still couldn't get up on a plane. I'm still going like four or five knots. That was my speed. They're going over 10. So lost 40 boats. What would you have done differently? The, uh, um, I, play it back. If I was in a coach boat watching somebody do this, this is what I would tell them. You're low on the on your on your line here. You've got a whole you know train of boats just above you. Don't put the spinnaker up when you're at the offset mark. Keep going. Point so the guy that is right overlapped with you to windward then puts his spinnaker up and ducks below He's you. He's going to peel down. He's going to yeah. peel down and go, yeah. go below you. And now you're high of the group. Now you can put your spinnaker up. And I'm the highest boat. Yeah, clean air the whole way. So the the rest of the the next two regat you know races after that yeah. race that disaster, the uh, that's what I did. You need a coach. I needed Scott. a coach. <laughs> I needed a coach. The coach would have told me, "What are you doing?" It's <laughs> comforting to know that you know somebody of your expertise still finds yeah. themselves in those situations where you think, "Oh, damn, I should have." Oh yeah, got others. So interesting stuff. So Scott, let's let's talk about coaching right now. Do you see big differences between the top boats and those uh, mid fleet? Uh, sort of when you step on a boat, do you instantly think, "Oh yeah, this is a very competitive boat," just because of uh, the setup, the way the team talks to you, whatever it is, versus when you step onto maybe a, a mid? Uh, yes, I'm fortunate enough to be able to um, step on uh, top boats, mid fleet boats, and the fleet boats, and there is a difference between them. The uh, the top fleet guys that I get to sail with on occasion have uh, everybody on their crew organized, and they basically their knowledge of their position on the boat is a hundred percent. They're they're top notch. You know why is that? Because they go out and they practice, and they work with the sailors. Uh, if they have to replace um, a crew, they usually are able to replace an equal with uh, a member that's not because they've kind of moved to the top. And, of course, 
top sailors want to sail with other top sailors. And, um, and they were able to, um, you know, groom these, uh, these sailors to be um, able to help the program. And uh, yeah, mid- Ray Wolf talked about this in one of the early, uh, early podcasts of, uh, for Sailfaster, where he talked about introducing uh, additional um, uh, new members, integrating them and starting mm-hmm. to learn with them so that he had quite a large roster, which right. he felt was critical. Right. The, the large roster is critical. Um, and those hot boats have it. They, uh, when you bring in a replacement, you bring in an, uh, basically an equal. If you don't bring in an equal, you, your entire crew are the coaches for this person that might need a little coaching on the boat. So it, it, it all works. So Ray Wolf, in, in, when he brings on someone who isn't an ace, they would have him and all his other crew as aces. And they, all of a sudden they have six coaches. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. As, as yeah. being a new member on that. So one, so one big difference then is, is I love that idea of uh, um, if you, if some, a key member can't make it, you've got somebody else slotting, slotting in with no, with no gap in ability. Right. If you, if you, if, if you, you know, you slot in somebody that's a brand is new to sailing, um, they would be coached up by the, you know, the, the, the skipper, but more importantly by the other crew members. Yeah. Got it. Got it. What else? What other differences do you, do you well, recall? You know, when I, when I'm on, um, uh, boats that are mid fleet or lower in the fleet, they, um, they typically have a good sailor or two on board. Um, but they don't have the whole package and, there's a lot of uh, diversion of um, of attention to helping some of your crew do the right thing. So as a skipper, this is the last thing you want. And I've done this before. And, uh, and you know, I sailed at 335 for a little while. We'd just bring my friends along and it hadn't been racing that much. And it was all of a sudden I'm finding myself having to not pay attention to what I'm doing, but coaching them. You have to drive the boat and do what you have to do. And if, if there's a crew member or two on board that are very knowledgeable, they can work with these other new members mm. while you're yeah. trying to drive the boat and, uh, and be the skipper. That makes sense. So um, that uh, they're able to divert their attention a little bit better without the whole thing falling apart. So if inevitably when, when the time comes when you have to integrate new people or when you're short of people, then I like that notion of if you're the skipper, you're, or you're helming it, then mm-hmm. you need to delegate that responsibility and just let somebody else in your crew do that, so you can focus on on boat speed, right? Driving. Well, exactly, yeah. exactly, because the, the skipper has to be focused. Yeah. Right? As soon as he takes his focus off what he's supposed to be doing, it it, it falls apart in a hurry. Okay. And um, so I had an opportunity to sail with the Robinsons uh, on their J one hundred and five early on when they first got the boat, and there was um, a couple of missing pieces in the crew. Um, they were also new to the boat, so they were still trying to learn how to make the boat go fast. So what we worked on was obviously the crew work, super important, but also now we got to get this boat to be faster because you get your boat to be faster and all of a sudden you're a lot smarter because, um, as you know, if, if, if you can, you know, keep your lane in a big fleet, um, with good boat speed, then you're going to be able to race your race and not how someone else dictates you to race. So Scott, when you, when you're coaching, presumably there, there are major incremental changes in boat speed that you can demonstrate, you can coach and so on. And as they get better and better, there must be smaller and smaller incremental changes, but they're still adding to boat speed. Just 
big assumption probably but no there is um it's easy to get the first level up so um you're maybe making obvious mistakes i get on the boat and it's like oh you got to do this and you got to do that and you know, you know maybe it has something to do with the way you're uh, trimming the main or the jib um you know maybe it's your um you know placement of the of people on the boat um and we figure those things out then as you get better, it gets a little tougher to find the little increments of, of boat speed that you can gather. One would be obviously the trim of the boat. First off, is the rig is all the rig correct? Because I have gotten on some of the J105s and measured their their boat, and I, I said, "Have you ever measured this before?" No. Um, when I first got new new sails, the 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 person who delivered the sails to me took a look at it, and I assumed it was all good. Well. We in one boat instance we found it was two inches different, you know, and we in in what the the, the headstay forestay yeah. the headstay yeah. Yeah, yeah 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 so we yeah. we fixed that little things like that that you might not you might be getting all the crew work going and everything looks good but you still don't think you're up to speed it might be something as simple as that it's like okay well I didn't really measure that so um, that uh, ends up being important the you know are you are you doing any in hauling you know. Um, some people have gotten on the boats and it's like, well, we don't really feel comfortable with that. The trimmer, you know, has tried it, but it never seemed to work. And so, because it's going to be different in different conditions, you know, you're going to inhaul, you know, the jib in some cases, and maybe other times, uh, not, not so much. Um, or, or, you know, maybe you um, are around other boats and you need to foot a little bit to keep your lane. You, know, you don't need to, you know, point up underneath somebody. Um, and, and then other times, you know, you want to put it in point mode and maybe you got to change your main, you got to, uh, you know, trim it. So the, you know, the leech is a little, a little bit tighter. It's forcing a little bit of weather helm in the boat, in the boat. And, um, it keeps you honest as a skipper to drive the boat up. And so you don't fall into somebody that might be in front of you. Maybe you can sacrifice a little bit of speed and how you do that and make it work for you. You know, so those little things we go over. Yeah. Ch- changing gears, um, is obviously a key thing you need to learn and changing gears is not as simple as just pointing slightly up or footing off it's the whole crew changing from say you know speed mode to point mode or the other the other way around that takes a lot of coordination right yeah and it's it's a good thing to let the people know it's like the guy above us is higher and faster first off you know is it, is it something else that's going on so we're maybe tell the crew to you know take a look at some stuff um, and maybe there's something obvious, maybe there isn't, or maybe your weight placement on the boat is too far forward or too far back. Um, and little, little things like that. But presume, presume the top boats, when you're on a top boat there, are they doing this without even really talking to each other? I, I think that in the, the top boats, it's the, um, the skipper, maybe the main sheet, or also might be the tactician and maybe the jib, uh, trimmer. So those, those three are all one, two, and three from the back of the boat. So they're the easiest ones to talk to. And those three might be able to solve everything. Maybe the jib halyard's not tight enough, you know? So obviously the, um, any one of the three probably would recognize that, but maybe someone on the rail would say, hey, you know, we got wrinkles all up on the, along the left of the jib. So, you know, have the jib trimmer, fix that. And uh, maybe the wind changed. Maybe, maybe you need to move the position uh, for the jib track back one or forward one to get a little bit, you know, or more power or less power. You know, if you wanted to um, put a little twist in the jib, pull the track back a little bit, you know, 
maybe the helmsman has an easier time. So top boats, again, top boats versus mid-fleet. What else are you seeing that's different? Um, besides the, the the crew work, working like a well-oiled machine, the skipper who's driving the boat. And to become a well-tuned skipper takes a lot of hours on the water and a lot of hours training with somebody that's better than you and faster than you. And uh, when you get an opportunity to do some of that, you might now say, okay, we made some changes because we were, you know, he was going higher and faster. We finally got the same height as him, but now he's a little bit faster. Now you need to make some other changes to be a little faster. And now all of a sudden you found your, now how are you going to do that? You know, um, you know, in the race, when you got other boats around you, maybe you're trying to keep your lane and you're, you're sometimes, you, can't, you know, you, you, you really can't. Yeah. So it, this is all about practice and, and, you know, going out with someone in practice is probably the number one thing you could do. Um, besides, I could get on your boat and we could go out without anybody around us and we can make some changes and do it. Do they really, are they really working or not? Yeah. We don't know for sure um, until you get next to somebody Maybe you get someone like Ray Wolf, you know, you get next to Ray, he's fast, you know, he's smart. He knows, he knows the boats, you know, well now, um, even though he's been in them just a short period of time, he has done all the right things to train himself and his crew up to be a well-oiled machine. Yeah. For those who don't know, um, quick commercial for Sail Faster. We have Ray Wolf as I think episode two of the Sail Faster series. So can you, can you talk about any specific improvements that you've seen in uh, that drive that drive boat speed improvements for you recently? Yes, boat speed obviously is number one, and we've got to figure out how to how to achieve you know top speed in the fleet or equal top speed. The things that I've uh, discovered over time, and this is following a lot of uh, a lot of boats, um, I'm taking pictures. I'm looking at the top boats and looking at uh, the middle of the fleet or lower end of the fleet, and you in from behind the boat, I see different things. We'll go to the main right now. Certain wind conditions, you want to have a nice open leach. Um, you bring the traveler up and ease the sheet a little bit. Um, so lightish winds with light, chop. Light winds with chop. You want you want to get some twist out of the main. You want to you know go ahead and you know bring the bring the traveler up some and and ease it and get your get your power going, um, and then match your jib you know to that. So um, and make sure that the slot in the in the between the main and the jib is, is, is working together. Um, which as a coach, I go back and take those pictures too, you know? So the, yeah, we, we had the, the, the quantum guys did that. They did some video of us. And I think they showed our boat as being an example of how not for the top of it. So, so much, because I think we were, we were trimming it, the sails individually rather mm-hmm. than as a pair. And as soon as we changed that, we seem to point higher, better speed. So they have to work as a pair. The, the main, and the jib are working together. Obviously, um, if, uh, if if the jib is not matching, um, the basically all you do is you look up the leeches of the two sails. And maybe um, it's even good for your jib trimmer to get out of the cockpit, go back, and see where you know how the main looks, and then you know, and then tuck down and look and see how his jib is is matching it. And if it's uh, if it's out of whack. The sail two tails aren't going to work well together, um, and you might play with it a little bit. You know, as um, if you find you're a little bit slow, um, you know, maybe maybe your leech and your jib is is too tight, and uh, and it's uh, you know 
you know, back winning the main or um, so match those two up. Uh, and when you have a jib boat, not a Genoa boat, it's generally um, going to um, be the case that your jib will be uh, likely be trimmed a little bit too tight on the leech. And that, that is, that's a common, you mean that's, typically, that's a common, typically that's a common theme yeah. because people are, yeah. are, are trimming the two sails individually and you trim it to a point where you're like, yeah, that trip, that looks just right. Well, exactly. it might look great, but you know what? The mainstream trim this way. And then if you, if you, uh, you as the drip shimmer come up and look at the main, it's like, well, there's a lot of, yeah. a, a lot of openness up, up top here and a lot of twist. Um, and, so that's you know, and then you go back and look at the jib, and it's, there's not the same twist, you know. So, so typically that's something you'll spot straight away. Something, something you spot. What else? What else do you typically spot straight away that maybe on on the top boat you're like, yep, check the box. They got yep, that. They right. got the curves right. Got that right. So the other thing is, you know, the conditions on the water are always changing. You know, and um, you might go through a point in the race where you need to have uh, more twist in your sails. But maybe all of a sudden it's, you know, get into a flat zone. Maybe you've gone somewhere where there's the, the currents changed. Um, you've, you've gotten away from where there's power boats or whatever it might be. And there's all dead flat water. Well, dead flat water, sails can be flatter. Uh, now you need a, a little bit more um, pointing ability because the, you know, the guy that's got the flatter sails and it's just it's pointing high in this dead flat water, you know, he, he's going to be higher. Maybe he won't be faster, but higher and equal. Is, is going to get you around the course faster. So can, can I ask you then that when you're on a, on a top boat, is it that they they see that coming? The boats further down the uh, pack tend to take a little bit longer to realize that. I think you're uh, exactly right. Is it, it's it's time in the boat, and also like I said, when you were practicing with somebody else, you're writing notes down on what what was working, and certain you writing everything down to what the waves are. So now you've you've you come into a, a new condition. The top boats are going to know how to adjust their their sails and sail the boat. And do I, you know, is the, is they going to be going for more more speed, or they're going to be going for uh, you know higher? The, what happens often is a, a boat that's not in tune with their the changes as much. You know, might be they might figure it out eventually. They say, "Wow, we, all of a sudden we're not pointing very high," and they're they're trying to figure out what's what's wrong. And then they might make, then they might, you might say, oh, I know it. I know what we got to do. We got to, you know, we, we've got the sails trimmed for when it's choppy and now it's flat. But they spent yeah. time in that diagnosis mode. Mm-hmm. Uh, and meanwhile, the top boats are already uh, probably predicted they could see it coming. They're, they're made those adjustments and they're, they're dialed in away. and they're going. Yeah. Um, they've got everything they're right from the main, the main is right. That the jib is right. Maybe they've inhaled it, the jib a little bit and gotten it uh, flatter. You know, you can get that uh, that jib in a lot more than you think. So, um, just recap then: uh, the differences you see are, or the improvements that people make are in getting the sails sails to work together as a pair, adapting to conditions, uh, changes in the weather or current dynamics faster than mm-hmm. anybody else. Uh, what else? What else do you? Um, well, obviously there's, you know, the, the wind is shifting. So you have to have a system that's going to tell you, you know, the wind we've, we've come into a knock, you know, cause you might be looking at the, uh, at your compass heading and say, okay, we're down five, we're down 10. Did you change the sails at all? If you didn't change anything and you're, you know, you're down to, you know, it's a real, it's a real knock that has got to be, uh, dealt with immediately too. So what's happening on top boats? Um, so the, the, the top boats, I mean, there, there's a person in, in charge. 
of, of, of saying we're down five, we're, we're down 10. Um, puff, you know, there's also people on the rail that are calling the, the puffs. I just sailed with someone. They're telling me lift in five. You know how much that helps the skipper? Yeah. Or, or, or there's a knock coming, you know, and they, how do they, how do so they know just, it? Let's just focus on, so you've got a lift coming in five, uh, five boat lengths or five seconds? Five seconds is five seconds. what I usually do. So then do you start to head up? Does that give you the ability to head up to anticipate it? Is that what you... Right, right. You so the, the, the skipper doesn't have to go through a, a, any period of time that he's down on the wind. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So he can go into pinch mode a little bit before... Knowing it's coming. Knowing it's coming. Yeah. And then when it comes, then it's, oh, now now continue to come up with it until you, you're on the wind. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's, that it's, little that that doesn't seem like much, but that increment could be you know ten feet better than the guy next to you. Yeah. Well, all of a sudden, you know what I mean. You do that three times, and you yeah, and you and you got a boat like yeah, 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 yeah. So, so uh, anticipation on having a crew ready to react to right. shifts. Yeah, yeah. And not only that, but your crew can also be telling you what's going ahead of the boats above you and above, and, and ahead of you. Um, so they might know that there's going to be a lift in five, but looking saying the guy that's, uh, you know, 10 boat lengths ahead of us, he, he, he all of a sudden he's lifted. So having people who can spot that mm-hmm. and then also knowing what to do, um, yeah. uh, just, so it's not just, it's information you act, you can actually use. Is there, a, is there a leg of the course that you look forward to, you feel really comfortable with, you know, I know how to do downwind? Or- sure. My favorite part of the of the course is the upwind first leg because if you nail that it makes the rest of the race easy that is where i uh, when i was younger that's where i thrived that was um you know getting the, off the line keeping your lane in the lifted tack uh, or towards the direction that you want to go if it's you know you want to get out to the left side you got to be able to hold this lane so it's, uh, it starts is very key to be able to implement a good weather leg because you can race your own leg, but um, it's what sets the tone for the entire race. I got into um, you know windsurfing, and then that put a lot of emphasis on reaching and downwind. Then so I've become more more balanced, you know, across the course. So I I now can sail, and this is why I like sailing the Viper and the Melchus Fifteen. Is there there's so many gains to be made downwind because it's like sailing upwind going downwind. So when there's, I get a big lift downwind, I'm jiving onto the onto the header because uh, you know it's an asymmetrical, yeah, asymmetrical, asymmetrical boat. Yeah. So you have to think you know in, in reverse. So that again is um, paying attention, yeah. and you, know, you got to watch your numbers. And, um, and upwind or downwind, both ways. Yeah, okay, yeah. both ways. So yeah. let's so let's go back to the you talk about stops. Presumably, and I guess it depends on how the, the how long that first leg is in distance. Yeah. Um, the start has got to be crucial to um, uh, to being to being in the top five at the at the top mark. If you have a bad start, you have no chance. If yeah. you if, uh, if you're first off the line, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be first to the first to the top mark. I, I know I'm right. stating the obvious here, right. but just uh, just actually, I'm curious about. You talked about uh, knowing which side of the course you want to be on. Um, you must spend a lot of time um, uh, preparing for uh, the uh, for that for, for the start and the first leg. So mm-hmm. knowing 
you presume you go through all the line biases and which side of the course and current mm. and you've done mm. all that right before you've even right. got to the first couple of minutes. Yeah. Um, you've, you've done all your decision making before the start. You know, let's say well, I want to go to the right, but the pin end is really favored. So now you've got a quandary. It's like, okay, do I want to, you know, have, you know, a two or three boat length jump by starting at the right end of the line? Or do I want to just go ahead and and start, for instance, at the boat and go right the way I want to go, right? Um, we, we run into this in the Wednesday night race here sometimes where you might want to go right, but the pin's way favored. So can you start on the pin and you can you find lane going right? And, and that's, that's, a, that's a big question. Yeah. That doesn't always work because you could get a guy above you that held you out to the left-hand corner. Right. And that's exactly the opposite place you wanted to go. So all these things have to be taken into account. Um, I, um, I oftentimes, you know, you know, pre-start maneuvers um, kind of make my decision uh, whether I want to go, you know, you know, up the line a little bit. So I have a little bit more ability to get to the right side. And so I'll, you know, with a, with a, you know, 45 seconds to a minute. Yeah. To, and, do I want to? I want to find a spot that I might be able to start at that um, looks like it's a place that I won't be stuck, you know, uh, going the wrong way for any length of time. Yeah. You know, so, so, so Doug Stryker in one of the earlier uh, one of our podcasts talked about um, about you know uh, which end of the line do you choose. And he was interesting that that even if the the boat end is slightly favoured, he felt especially locally here. That's already congregates, and he felt the smart boats will mm-hmm. then actually go to the pin end of the line, right. which may be unfavored, but it but it's clear air because there's right. a scrum of uh, J105s moving slowly as they do. Right, right. So, right. Oh, that, that's quite interesting. Well, I think um, that's the advantage of coming across the starting line on port, looking for your spots, because if uh, if I'm down at the um, you know the pin. And an ITAC at two minutes to go, and I'm come now. I'm coming back, and I'm looking at the boat, looking at that congregation. Now, I'm probably not going to get in that in that group, right? You're going to just tack underneath of them. Yeah. And yeah. Let them fight it out. Some of those guys are going to get a better start than me, but they're going to be a lot of guys that are going to get uh, pushed out you know, in a bad spot you know, have to tack away after the start, you know, whatever it might be. So, um, and you can, you can make that determination. So, you know, there's, there's plenty of people that just line up at two minutes to go and they just drift with their sails luffing and they're waiting, waiting for the start. You know what I mean? So um, you might as well, you keep moving. In, in, Especially with a keel boat, right? Heavy yeah, boat keep, like mo- a, keep the boat moving. Yeah. Exactly. With a keel boat, you, it's even more critical than... Uh, yeah, Ray Wolf talked about um, being, coming back towards making his approach to the line mm-hmm. uh, earlier than other people because he wanted to keep, didn't want to have a last, literally a last minute maneuver. Right. And yep. want to be able to be able to accelerate. Yep. So yep. even if it meant going slower, that as you curve in, presumably, and then accelerate to the last. I don't right. Know, so he, he's leaving them. Uh, you know, he wants to be moving too. And he's going to, you know, maybe tack into a spot that he can now tack into and keep the boat moving. Maybe he doesn't have to go straight head to wing and stop the boat. Yeah. You know what I mean, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. that's, and that's the key. Oh, yeah. So you're going to come, you're going to come across and you're going to, um, 
uh, find that spot that's going to thought it would be perfect uh, to keep your boat moving in a keelboat situation is critical in a dinghy. No, you can come right up underneath somebody and stop the boat. Yeah. You, you know? can accelerate. Right. Right. And then you accelerate into the hole um, yeah. that you've created and hopefully kept. Yeah. So, and there's a lot, there's a lot of little things to do there, but we won't get into all that on how to keep that hole. I know you've spent a lot of time on J105s and something I was, um, you know, I'm new to the J105. So, yeah. so, um, so I was curious about was that when I first started going upwind, I was trying to stick to the um, to the VMG polars basically, which uh-huh. were telling me that uh, you know you uh, your apparent wind angle should be 25 degrees. That's the thing; it's pretty narrow. But then anybody who came in the boat said, "No, you're, you're you've got a foot. You've got a foot a lot more than um, that." I was thinking. Yeah, I, I think the um, part of the reason on a J105 where you might feel like you're footing more than you normally would want to. It's you only have a little jib up there. Um, you know, that's, that's, that's getting you, giving you a certain amount of power in the, uh, in, in the, in the boat, in the rig. And oftentimes to get everything out of that, you have to be down off the wind just, you know, a little bit to get the boat moving. And maybe you can now then after that, maybe you can creep it up, but um, generally the boat, has to be has to be moving because uh it's easy in a boat like that to to kind of choke it off yeah and, and you yeah. know be too high yeah. you don't want to be high and slow um or sometimes it's even okay to be high and low especially if you're in a big lift which that's another thing i always tell people it's like you know take advantage of this lift by by footing towards the next header so, you know it's something i learned a long time ago it's just you know uh, really shifty conditions and it gets um, you know you 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 tack into a big lift you know from from a header to a big lift it's it's okay if i'm not going high 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 but you just want to go fast 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 and that, that requires you to be on the low edge not the high edge telltale is still streaming back yeah it's not, yeah. not like you're, you're, not, you're not going low low yeah. you're, you're just you're just a couple degrees i've got to, i've got to try that because you know you get greedy right okay let's ride this lift let's ride it up and yeah yeah you start to start to pinch but that's not the you should be footing off yeah you no, get the low no, side no pinching the, in the lifts no pinching in the lifts pinching in the hole in the in the header so if you can't tack and there's someone you know you got you trapped or whatever pinch 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 because then the, then the, maybe the lift's coming and now you want to be higher up right so then when you do get the lift you're you're able to yeah to uh you know just have a higher spot already scott there's so much to uh there's so much to learn from you uh, once again thank you so much brilliant much appreciate the time really enjoyed this uh, absolutely yeah, i enjoyed it too thank you so much see you out in um, the water <laughs> you bet see you in the water